a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Pete Cleary from Zinc. A business can't just be about making profit. It has to be about creating value. And I fundamentally believe in that to the every fibre of my being. Pete Cleary is real-life proof that nice guys don't always finish last. Pete created one of Australia's most innovative brand and marketing companies called Zinc, and he's built the business into a giant. But growing up, he came from far more humble beginnings. Pete's dad was an electrical engineer and owned his own small business. His mum brought up Pete and his five siblings. There are three boys, three girls, two bedrooms, and only one bathroom between them. Being part of such a big family meant Pete was an industrious kid. He had his own lawn mowing business, he washed dishes in the pub, and one year, when the family lemon tree had a bumper crop, he and his brother rode around the neighbourhood selling lemons out of the back of a cart. He made his first investment in the share market by the time he was 14, and he knew he always wanted to own his own small business. Pete went to uni and studied economics and politics. He didn't know what he wanted to do, so when it came time to getting a real job, he wound up working for a family friend in his marketing business. Uh, that company was called Promotive Marketing, and it was a terrific it was a terrific company. Like Pete Grogan is the guy that created the company as it was by the time I got there, and he was a he's a mentor today. Like he's a shareholder in Zinc, my current company, um, and he was the guy when I started Zinc. Um, he was the guy I asked to be chairman, uh, and he's a terrific. He's almost like a a second or a third dad to me because he's um, he, he showed me the way that business can be done, uh, that it doesn't have to be a, a zero-sum game for me to win, someone has to lose. He showed that you could be kind and generous and run a business ethically and with strong morals, and he really cared about people. Like, he looked after people, and that was the my entrance into my first job. I was very lucky to have someone that took a genuine interest in people and cared for people and generally look after you, as well as being successful and learning a lot because he was a good businessman as well. How big was Promotive at the time you went to work for them? And what, what, were, you, what were you doing? Uh, well, I started as a account coordinator or manager. I can't remember. Uh, I don't know, maybe there was 15 or 20 people. It was a company based in Mount Waverley in Melbourne. And uh, it was very successful. He'd, he'd grown year on year. He used to have between 5 and 7% growth each year and he had a partner, a guy by the name of Mike Doran, and they complemented each other's, you know, strengths and weaknesses well. And they, those guys had grown that business for about 10 years to the point where in, when it was finally sold in 2000, it was probably a, an $8 million business with about 30, 35 people. So, um, and I'd worked there for... God, five or six years and just started as a, as a, you know, someone who didn't know anything, um, as you don't. And we used to just, we used to sell promotional 
merchandise to companies and there was a lot of cold calling because you had to build your own client base. And we used to jump in our car and drive around like it was a very different world then and it was very manual and you'd be driving driving around everywhere, seeing clients and picking things up and dropping samples and it was a terrific place to hone your people skills um, and your sales and marketing skills as well, which is what happened. Uh, and maybe after about, I was there about 12 or 18 months, I said to, I, I asked Pete that I thought there was a way, because we used to be paid 100% commission. So again, it was a different um, way of working than how we do currently. But, so you, didn't, um, you weren't getting any base at all? If you didn't bring in the business, you got, you got paid nothing? Uh, yeah, we, we had a six-month introduction where you'd get a small wage and then what the, the methodology for the sales team at the time was that, um, and it was quite generous, is that you could um, you would get a percentage of the gross profit that you generated over, over and above your base. But the base was very low and it was structured that way to encourage you to get out there and sell. And then once you were, on, you, once you were comfortable and you had a, a client base after 12 months, um, you were then basically on a hundred percent commission, and that's how that's how we worked. So you were essentially knocking on doors, of potentially you're a pretty small kid, a twenty twenty two year old kid knocking on doors of big businesses trying to sell stuff. Was that basically? How did, how did you do that? Yeah, that was basically what was happening, and you're a hundred percent commission based. But there was a great support network in the office, um, and Pete was always there, and that, like he'd be putting in one hundred and twenty percent to be helping you do whatever it is. That needed to be done and it, and it worked really well like there was some you know there was probably an account management team of five or six people like senior account managers and they had support teams underneath them by the time um we finally sold the business and it was a uh it was a tremendously successful way uh to approach it but i remember after probably about a year and a half or two years and maybe i've always had an entrepreneurial flair I, i'd worked out that if I could spend more time talking to clients and more time talking to people and less time on admin in the office, I could actually make more money and more money for the for the business and more money for myself. So I said to Pete, look, could I hire someone and pay for them out of my commission and, and keep growing the business? And that hadn't happened before. And he said, look, that seems like it's a good idea. And so we ended up doing that. And then that started a, a, a different model uh, of the business where People were then paying for direct support people out of their commission, but I remember doubling my um, my salary in the next twelve months just by by doing that. Um, so I could spend more time out talking to clients and doing deals rather than doing the paperwork or processing the administration. So at that time, you're in your early mid twenties. How much were you you earning? Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. I think Pete would kill me, but we were probably. 150, 200 grand a year, which was wow. an enormous amount of money yeah. at that time. And this was back in, back in the early 90s, I'm guessing, or mid-90s. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it was phenomenal. And people were well remunerated. Uh, it, it was terrific. Um, and I was driving a $1,500 Datsun 1600. I used to have to park it around the corner and not drive into clients' um, car parks because it was, it was embarrassing. But, uh, you know, I'd... This was after about two or three years. You, you would be on that sort of money, but again, it was all it was all risk. Um, if something happened to that client, or you weren't generating revenue, or you, you would earn literally nothing. So it was um, it was a generous um, cut uh, 
to the to the account manager, but it was uh, it was a very unusual entrance into into working because most people don't have that sort of experience. So, in two thousand, the business was sold for for a pretty good sum. Yeah. So we we went through probably about two years after that. I initially put on the account coordinator. We then put I then put on another one, and we just kept building the team. And and the guys at Promotive, the different account managers, they they were doing the same sort of thing. We were all doing the same thing then. Um, I then knocked on the door of of Pete's office again and said. Instead of buying a house, I, I knocked on the door and said to Pete, could we buy into the business? Because I thought the business was terrific and I could see that, you know, I didn't know anything about this business three or four years before, but you could see that it was fantastic and it had a great future and the ethos was good and the company was great. So I said, can we buy in? And it was a very lucky time at that stage that Pete's original partner, Mike Doran, was p- potentially looking to um to sell out, so there ended up being some room for us to actually buy into the company, and we scraped together as much money as we possibly could, which wasn't much, and we bought 10%, I think it was, of Promotive, or 15, I can't quite remember, and if I had been able to buy more, I would have, um, but that was that was my first lesson in understanding that, you know, you need money to make money, because if I had been the son of a, of a wealthy um, businessman as opposed to, you know, growing up in, in Forest Hill, I think, you know, today you'd be, even with the success we've had, you, you'd be in a very different position. Maybe it wouldn't, maybe you would have won and lost a lot more money, but it was a very good lesson early that you need money to make money. And so I could see investing in Promotive was going to be a better way than buying a house. And that's through the investments that I've done over the years. And so that's what we did. And that was a year before we got an offer that we couldn't refuse in, I think it was about 2000. You were recently married at the time and, and, and was Michelle very supportive of this or was she saying, Pete, we can buy a great house now and you're letting it ride on a, on a promotions business? Well, was, was that a tough conversation or, or, or was, it a, was it a really easy decision for you back in 1999 to, to let it roll on, on a business where you'd just been a sort of a, a pretty up and coming sales guy? Yeah, no, that's right. No, no, it was a very, it was a very tough conversation. Well, it wasn't tough. It, we're very different. So Michelle is, she's a fantastic person, and she just completed her, her uh, architecture degree at Melbourne Uni, and so she was a, a practicing architect uh, at that stage. And her level of risk is very different to mine, which we didn't realise at that time. I mean, you get married, you're in love, you know, you're thinking from your own mental framework. And I thought everyone had my level of risk, um, which I've since found out that they clearly don't. So from Michelle's perspective, um, she'd seen her father, her own dad, have ups and downs in business and she'd seen, you know, what the down looked like and she was a lot more risk adverse and really didn't want to do it. She was much uh, happier to, to sort of go the, the normal expected route of buying a house and, you know, getting a job and just paying that off. But from um, my perspective, it was a real fire in the belly, I guess, uh, with regard to not wanting to go down that path at all. So, no, we had some really challenging discussions early on. But to her credit, she was absolutely fantastic. And we had to borrow, you know, as much money as you would for a deposit on a decent house. Um, but inst- instead of buying a house, we were putting into a business that, that you know, could do anything. So it was a it was a big risk and she really pushed outside of her comfort zone, which we've both done, you know, since we got married over 20 years ago. Um, and it's been 
a pretty consistent theme where if one of us has wanted to do something and push outside that comfort zone, we generally have supported the other, but it's certainly not been without the conversations that we had. And we certainly had some early in those in those days, but we did it and it was the best thing we ever did. In the early 2000s, Promotive was sold to an American company called Corporate Express. At that time, Promotive didn't have a national footprint or even a website, and they couldn't compete against gigantic American business. So Pete and the team had made the logical move to sell the business. Pete will continue to work for Corporate Express and even moved up to Sydney to head up their new office up there. I asked one of the account managers from here, a guy by the name of Rick Gould, to come up with me and, and he took a risk and did that, which was great. And so we went up to Sydney, you know, had a team of four or five people in this small promotional business. And that was the nucleus of the new New South Wales business. But my brief was national to grow the, this new division of Corporate Express as quickly and as profitably as we could. So we then set about over the next four and a half years to make a number of acquisitions in different states and to develop a global footprint using the Staples network in both Australia and New Zealand, which is what we did. And how, how did you like the role? Was it so you were doing, I guess, a more senior role? Was it was it? Did you see yourself as a person who could soon be leading a business? Oh, absolutely. I I, I absolutely loved it. Like moving to Sydney was fantastic, um, and and part of moving to Sydney, like for my. From my perspective, is we we did a deal with Michelle where she'd because she'd been practicing an architect for for a few years then, and and she, whilst she really enjoyed it, it wasn't her first love. She liked aspects of it, like the design, but there was a lot of things she didn't like, and she'd always wanted to be an archaeologist. So the deal was, if we moved to Sydney for my work, is that she could do her PhD in archaeology and become an archaeologist. And so that's exactly what we did. So we moved to Sydney with no kids. Um, and it was one of the best times of our lives. It's a fantastic place to, to live. We, we um, ended up settling in a place called a suburb called Coogee, um, which is near the beach, which is fantastic. And it was a it was a terrific time in terms of um, working very hard, but in enjoying what we were doing. And the business was growing um, exponentially across a number of different areas. And they had this one source solution business model for all the non-direct factors of production for any corporate in Australia. So they were targeting the top 200 ASX companies and wanted to provide all the non-direct factors of production that that business would need. So they started originally as a stationary business and then they went into, and then it broadened into what they called office supplies. And then they went into a range of things like janitorial and cleaning and um, liquor And then promotional merchandise was one of these categories. Also furniture, IT hardware. So it was this broad one source solution model, which had some logic to it for sure. Um, And we were probably one of the fastest growing divisions within that, but always relatively small um, because the the stationary side, the office um, supply side was the bigger division of that business. So you've... You're having the time of your lives in Sydney, young married couple and corporate chest doing really well and you're doing really well. And then a few years later you say, well, I think it's time to come back to Melbourne and, and do my own thing. Yeah. No, well, it was actually funny because um, I remember the first two or three years, the, the learnings were fantastic. So what I basically had is I'd come from a small, um, moralistic, well-governed company but had a narrower focus and sort of 
didn't really have a growth impetus. It sort of managed its profitability through expenses um, and wasn't a big risk-taking business. To then going to a publicly listed company, which is what it was, and where the balance sheet was quite strong and there wasn't any capital limitations if you had a good idea, whereas in a small business, there's always lots of capital limitations. So I got this taste of what having a strong balance sheet looks like. And while at Corporate Express, we made I made something like five acquisitions and we grew that division of Corporate Express from the seven or eight million at Promotive to about 65 or 70 million within four and a half years. Half of that growth was acquisition, half of that growth was organic. And so what it did was open my eyes to what's possible if you have a different perspective, if you think on a different scale, and if you have access to capital. So again, it was coming back to that personal lesson of um, you need money to make money. Uh, And what it also did was give me insight at a senior level to a lot of ASX listed, um, you know, top 100 companies at senior management level, because these were all our clients. Anyone that you can think of in the top 200, Corporate Express was dealing with maybe 100 of those. And what it showed me was that the um, culture in a lot of these business and the dis- it wasn't as, as what I expected it to be. And it also showed me that um, a lot of people, when they're making decisions in some of these large corporates, are doing it from their own perspective as, as opposed to thinking of it from the business perspective or uh, a broader perspective that's outside of their own interests. So, and, and this also I saw within Corporate Express, there was a terrific guy by the name of Ted Nark, who was an American who was the CEO at the time uh, when I moved up, and he, he was fantastic. He had a, a similar philosophy to Pete Grogan. Um, he was very well respected and well regarded, and he had integrity and all the values that you'd expect in a good leader, and he really was terrific. And I, at that stage, honestly thought that maybe leading a company at some stage, being a CEO or a senior executive in a in a top 100 Australian company is what I'd like to, to do. But over those next sort of couple of years, that perspective started to temper. And then at, at one stage, uh, maybe about a year, year and a half before I left Corporate Express, Ted ended up going back to the United States and um, he was succeeded. And it was a different... Um, it was a different world under um, the new CEO and it was a world that I really didn't like. Uh, values changed, the culture changed, there was a whole range of things changed. And what I then started to see is that this is this is the way that a lot of businesses are operating and I've seen that in some of the clients that we were exposed to at senior levels as well. So this is where it became apparent that, you know, I had a decision to make from a personal perspective um, and this came to a head one day when I saw the head of one of the divisions um, get fired, um, literally get fired. And the way it was done and the, I think I think it was amoral and it wasn't, um, it was typical corporate stuff where, you know, it was just a headshot sort of a scenario and uh, it, and it just moved on. There was no... There was no process to try and make it work. There was no goodwill uh, involved. It was political. Um, there was machinations in the background. There was it was about protecting turf of people internally in the in uh, the organisation at the time at a senior level. Um, there was some non-performance, sure, but it was also someone arbitrarily made a decision 
and then that decision was carried out. And so when when that happened, and, and I remember talking to the to the guy that was fired because I'd seen him walking down the corridor towards me, and he was literally crying. And there were people as he was passing who were pretending not to see him cry, which is just remarkable, you know. Um, and these were people who were colleagues and friends. So I said to his name was Graham, and I said to Graham, "Are you okay? What's wrong?" And he told me what had happened. And I couldn't do anything to help him. But that's when I realised this place probably wasn't for me. Um, and I realised that the rules of the corporate game are not set up to get the best out of people. Um, they're best, you know, a lot of companies are set up or a lot of traditionally corporate companies, large companies are set up to extract value out of people and they're cogs in a wheel. Um, and it doesn't allow people to be human or be themselves um, and to care about people in a way that you would expect normal people would care about each other. So that's when I realised that this leadership and this company wasn't, the new company wasn't for me. Um, and that's when I started thinking about I needed to do something else, which I then communicated to the CEO at the time. And we agreed to disagree on a number of things. And I gave I gave um, six months notice, which was an extraordinary long period of time to give, but I wanted to look after the team that was there. Pete was now in his early 30s, and for the first time in his adult life, he had to stop and think about what he wanted to do. He shadowed a merchant banker, worked in a real estate agent's office, and almost started working at an advertising agency. But Pete realised the culture he wanted to work in was a culture he needed to build himself from the ground up. So he spent two months writing a business plan, and the first five pages of that plan weren't filled with revenue forecast or new product ideas. Instead, he dedicated them to imagining the culture he wanted to create. Pete approached investors to fund the business and was able to raise almost $2 million in seed capital. With his old boss, Pete Grogan, coming on board as chairman, Pete was ready to build his new business. The business was called Zinc. It would specialise in promotional and loyalty marketing to help big and small companies retain customers and activate new brands. You might remember things like the VB Live Cricket Watch or the Cadbury Joy Mug. These were all created by Zinc. Or if you go to a cinema and drink a Coke out of a Toy Story or Avengers cup, the chances are it was Zinc that created that experience by bringing together the production company like Warner Brothers or Disney with the cinema chain and their manufacturing partners in China. This wasn't too dissimilar to what Pete and the team were doing at Corporate Express, but culturally, the two businesses couldn't have been any more different. The way you run your business is very uncorporate. And I think obviously part of your experience in corporate press drove this. So you, you don't, uh, people don't need to take sick days. They can just not come in. Uh, you can just choose not to come in. Even you get free breakfast, free lunches, free massages, free gym. This isn't sort of Silicon Valley, which is commonplace. It's pretty unusual for business in Australia to to do this kind of stuff for the team. Uh, and obviously, it's it's costly. Was this a always going to be the case is it's hard especially when you obviously have good times and bad times in a business and during a good time you can give this stuff away during a bad time potentially it's uh, to, to other partners and other shareholders go well Pete uh, you're spending you're spending a lot on this on these free breakfasts yeah that's a good question I, I think it comes down to the type of, of business you're trying to build so for me we're our business is built, built on a philosophy of shared value which is a Michael Porter concept and, and that philosophy is, and I didn't know this when we started it, but instinctively we were doing some of these things um, and then it became very clear maybe about five years into um, Zinc operating post when we launched 2005 
is I came across this concept and it was like a light bulb going on. It was I could suddenly see what we were doing more clearly and it gave more of a framework. The key premise behind shared a shared value business is that a business can't just be about making profit. It has to be about creating value and I fundamentally believe in that to the every fibre of my being. And this was implicit in the business plan that I'd written five years before and shared with everyone that had come on board. And as I said, the first five pages are dedicated to what that culture looks like. And what I was what I'd inadvertently done is focus on the execution without having the strategy or the framework clear. And what this concept of shared value did was give me that strategy on which to hang it. So once you've got that strategy clear, the good times and the bad times, you adapt your business to suit what environments it in. And and an example of that is, yes, we do some of those things that you talk about, um, which are the superficial things really um, that that sort of people understand, but these are built on a bedrock of of having a great purpose that, that aligns people to what that you know, end goal or vision is. And it's also got to be a, a, a shared values that people have um, as a bedrock of any business. So when times are good, we're able to share the value that the business creates. And we share that in a way that's unique and different with all the key stakeholders in our business. And from team members' perspective, that means we can afford to do some of the things that you've just mentioned before, which are the superficial things. But when times are bad, we can't afford to do those things. It's like a household budget. You've got to tighten your belt. So when times are bad, we go back to the team and say, hey, we can't do some of these things for these reasons. And then because we've built our business on this philosophy and people understand that when they join, it gives us great flexibility as a business to adapt what our expenses are and how we manage the business. And it's the same with our shareholders. Like um, when people are investing in the business, they understand the premise on which the business is built. You don't buy, if you don't buy into that premise, don't invest in this business. So it's 2016 and you guys are, are speaking, I think the fifth best place to work in Australia. Everything's going really well. You've got a, a lovely family, your, your business is growing really well. And suddenly, probably for almost for the first, really for the first time in, in a while, things stopped going so well. So the business didn't, the trajectory of the business sort of turned around a bit. Can you, can you talk a bit more about, about what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we made the decision. Uh, Two thousand. We made the decision in about two thousand and fourteen, uh, two thousand and fifteen, that Australia was a small market. We'd learned more, more, um, a lot of lessons from scale, like in terms of going back to some of my earlier experiences at Corporate Express, and saying, well, we can have whatever success we can here, and maybe we can grow this in Australia to a twenty-five or a thirty or a thirty-five million dollar business, even. Now, that would be fantastic and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we do the same actions in a market that's 10 times the size, could we possibly have a business that is 10 times as large? And the short answer is, well, yes, you can. You've just got to change your perspective and you've got to think differently, but you still do the same core core actions. So we took a risk to grow into China in about 2014-15 um, and we stuffed it up two times uh, before we got it right. It took us about three years to get it right. And that took a lot of capital is basically um, what occurred because, you know, taking on, it's almost like selling ice to the Eskimos in terms of selling the marketing services and tools that we have 
to China, which is where a lot of these uh, um, activation tools are actually created. So it took a lot of capital. A lot of our funding and growth was financed from working capital because we're ostensibly uh, a business that is not capital intensive. So um, our working capital is, is funding our growth. And there were some real challenges in those early days, and we had enormous growth in China. The first year in China, we did two million. The next year, we did five. The next, or next year, we did four. The next year, we did eight. The next year, we did 16 in revenue. And growing from two to four million from working capital is okay. But you start growing from 16 million to 30 million, we were basically doubling every two years. That's a lot of working capital to cover. And what we basically had was a bit of a perfect storm in 2016, where we had enormous growth, um, particularly in China. During this time as well, we we started um, a regional expansion strategy where we were, I think at that stage, probably into another two or three countries like New Zealand, um, like Vietnam as well. And that was obviously um, taking capital. And then what we had was a perfect storm of a slight dip in sales, maybe, well, not a slight, but maybe a 15% dip in sales in the Australian business. And at the same time, for completely unrelated um, issues, we had two of our major debtors in Australia who, or clients in Australia, who couldn't pay their bills. One was undergoing a massive ERP and accounting package restructure and basically um, stuffed it up. And they owed us millions of dollars and they literally couldn't pay any suppliers for about five months. And the other company, uh, a major client of ours, had financial difficulties and for very different reasons, they couldn't pay us at the same time. So we had this perfect storm of requiring capital and not having access to capital and not having the right um, capital structure to support the business growing at that stage. So it, it really did cause real challenges for us and that was a very difficult time in 2016 you're right and how close did the business so you're almost a victim of your own success but how close did the business come to collapsing was it was it days weeks did you always think oh, we'll get through this was there any time where you sort of woke up at night and thought this this may be the end <laughs> yes yes it, there was a couple of sleep sleepless nights for sure I don't know. In terms of putting a, a number on it, I, 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 it was never like a day or a week away. It wasn't that clear cut. But what, what we had was a, um, a capital problem, cash flow problem, and what we had to do was keep trying to solve that. And we couldn't just trade through from it. So we had to go back to shareholders. We had to put um, – everyone had to put loans in. Most of the shareholders, because this is a part of that philosophy that we've built the business on, is I encourage um, – all key people have helped build the business to have equity in the business. And what I would like to do is, in time, extend that to everyone who works in the business because I think everyone deserves to be able to have control over their own future and to be able to direct it. So um, at the time where you're most vulnerable and you feel your own role, you know, the very existence of the, of the company is challenged, you're asking the same people to put in personal savings and life savings at the same time, like you're doubling down almost. Um, we also had access to, got access to capital from some very um, good financial partners, banking partners. And I also had a group of good um, friends that were mates that were able to, business um, professionals that were able to give some advice. 
and and out of that advice, one of the um, one of that uh, led to our new banking partner. But it's all a matter of confidence with some of these things as well. Like if you think you can get through it, nine times out of ten you will. If you think you can't get through it, it's very much your mental attitude with some of these things. So at the same time that your business is is imploding in a way, you've your your daughter comes home and and she tells you that one of her friends has had some tough times, and and you and your wife, despite living in a, in a at the time, a pretty small house and, and business probably not going as well as it had been. And you guys decided to, to take in two kids who are really, really struggling. Uh, can you tell me, tell me what happened there? You had done your research, haven't you, Adam? <laughs> uh, it was, well, it's probably been four years now. And um, so it was probably a year before uh, this has happened. But no, it was... Um, it was uh, an opportunity where um, my youngest daughter, uh, Naya, who was in grade four at the time, her, one of her friends at school, unfortunately her uh, mother had passed away from cancer and her mum and dad were, were separated at the time and uh, unfortunately a short a year after that, her, their, her father um, passed away. And in, in that year where they were living with their dad, um, they started spending more and more time at our place just because it made sense because their dad found it difficult to look after them for, for different reasons. So, um, and we realised that um, during that time that um, the, the kids needed some help uh, and the school was, was um, aware of these things as well, but it was very clear that potentially... If someone didn't do something, these kids were going to slip through the cracks. So they started coming to our house for, for dinner to make sure that that was cool and, and uh, having showers and doing their homework and different things. And then that, you know, started out with just Eloise. And then she said, hey, I've got an older sister at home called Charlotte. Could, she's at home by herself. Can she come over? And we said, sure. And then we had the chance to meet Charlotte. And then one thing led to another, uh, and then their, their dad got sicker, and then eventually uh, he passed away. And during that time, um, the community was trying to help, but, you know, it's one of those things that it's hard. So everyone's busy with their own lives and everyone's got challenges with their own kids. But if something isn't done sometimes, people, you know, people just become statistics and, my wife, particularly Michelle, she was amazing. She was um, very committed towards helping. And one of the key things, as she said at the time, like part of what Zinc does is we sponsor um, and are a community partner to Cambodian Kids Foundation. And we dedicate a, a, a decent percentage of our profits to supporting nearly 500 people, which is about 120 families in one of the poorest parts of Cambodia. And including schooling and health and hygiene. And she challenged and she said, look, you're happy to do these things for people you don't even know and yet there's two kids that live around the corner that are going to slip through the cracks if we don't do something and everyone is all, you know, talking the, the talk but you've actually got to do something. You've got to take action because talk's cheap. And if we don't do anything, these kids could fall through the cracks. Um, so we need to step up and the challenge was if their dad passed, or, and he was expected to pass, is the girls are most likely going to be split up. Um, and, you know, Michelle was incredibly powerful in terms of 
um, that not happening because that was going to make um, an incredibly challenging situation for these girls even more challenging because they were struggling. I mean, you can imagine being in grade four and grade six and then your mum passing and then a year later your dad passing. You know, what do you do? And and, and it's not like they were, they were together, you know, the, their mum and dad were divorced. Um, so they were in an incredibly challenging situation. So... Uh, we made the decision, we talked to our kids. Our kids, Naya and Charlie, were absolutely fantastic. And we, as a family, we made the decision to offer, uh, open ourselves up to something that we had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. Um, and I guess, you know, you, you, the philosophy you have in life is what you take with your family or what you take with your business. Um, you can't separate the two. And I think that's that's the authenticity that most people in in life are looking for, whether if it's friendships or you're working in businesses or you're a leader in a business, people talk about authentic leadership. To me, that's what it is and it's it's to do the hard things when it's really hard and sometimes you, you don't choose to when these things happen but they come up in life and you choose to either take, take action and do something or you choose not to do anything. And so as a family, we chose to help. Um, and we took formal guardianship of the girls. It was four years ago now, 2016, um, and they've been with us ever since, and it's been the, the the hardest thing I think we've ever done in our lives, and it was very difficult at the business at the same time, like it was almost like a perfect storm because the first two years were just a nightmare. And just like that, things had come full circle for Pete and his family. They were back to sharing a two-bedroom, one-bathroom home between four kids and two adults. Just like when Pete was a kid, Pete and Michelle had plans to extend the family home, but with the business sideswiping them financially, they just couldn't afford it. But eventually, and very slowly, things started to get better. Some of their early investments were paying off, and zinc was becoming cash flow positive. And just when things were starting to improve, COVID-19 happened, and few industries were impacted as much as the marketing sector. Even worse, a big part of Zinc's business was working with the film and cinema industry to create and sell merchandise. But with cinemas shutting down around the world, the market for their merchandise disappeared. What do you do? This is sort of February 2020, and, and you're once again faced with another cataclysmic event, and, and you've, got to, you've got to pivot. Absolutely. And I, and I, think, uh, I think it was certainly something that nothing, no one had expected, and the globally, uh, like with cinemas shutting down and, you know, restaurants and gyms, nothing like this has ever happened before. So it certainly wasn't something anyone had planned for because it's almost impossible to do so. What we'd also started doing is we've, we've merged with a German company um, mid last year in 2019. And uh, so we were just completing um, that merge, which was sort of two-thirds, zinc, one-third, this company. So we're in. We're at the the tail end of that process as well when this all hits. So um, we did what we did in the GFC. We brought the team together because um, it's all built on culture. So we're radically transparent with information. So we brought the team together as one unit and said, "Look, this is the situation we're in from a from a profit and a loss perspective, and from a cash flow perspective." We put it all out on the table in terms of letting them know the position of the company that we had good cash reserves, but um, we don't know how long this is going to last and we don't know how bad it's going to get. So we've got to protect all of our, the whole team for as long as we can. And to do that, what we have to do is decide how we're going to do that. So we've got to reduce 
our cash outflows. And so we took all the normal steps in terms of talking to banking partners and and, and trying to minimise that. But the biggest cost we have, 80% of our cost are people. So we said to the guys, look, there's a percentage of people, eight or 10 people in this room that can't be here, or everyone can take a 10% pay cut. And like we did in the GFC, it's we'd like you guys tell us what you'd like to do. Do you want to think of yourselves or do you want to think of your teammates? And it was one of the proudest moments I've had because everyone decided to, to take the pay cut and protect their teammate, which is awesome. Um, and, a, and, a, and the leadership group had already taken a 20% pay cut. And, and because we're in the cinema business uh, in terms of what you were talking about, we had movies, this is maybe about two weeks before the pandemic truly hit it had already been hitting in, in China, which we'd been watching and it had affected our business there. So we'd already had some forewarning. I didn't think it had hit as hard as it has. I don't think anyone did. But we knew that it was going to be impacting that part of our business. So we're already taking some precautionary actions. But when it truly hit, we were probably maybe a couple of weeks ahead of everyone else just because of the exposure we'd already had to China. So we started culturally with the people and um, made sure that we could protect our team for as long as we can. We then went through the you know, business planning process that most people do in terms of um, optimising their cash flows and ensuring that we can trade through this. But then we realised that this wasn't going to um, get us as far as we wanted and we'd made a public commitment to protect all team members and not let anyone go. And we were going to do what was needed to be done. So we were looking to raise capital from shareholders again and, and from some of our banking partners. But in the midst of this, it then, then became an opportunity to um, pivot, pivot our business, and it's an overused word now, but to adapt our business because literally cinemas were shut so we had a whole team not doing anything. How do we keep them engaged? And this is where this personal protective equipment or PPE market segment suddenly became apparent to us that there was an opportunity here to be able to to be able to uh, explore this and and maybe see if we can't help our clients get through this period. So we started talking to our clients from um, from a PPE perspective. We'd had exposure to this previously through our promotional side business, where we had some experience already with this. But we had all the supply chains, all our core competencies are set up to be able to adapt quickly. And our whole culture is built around adaptability and flexibility. So um, we had four offices in China. Um, we had the teams in place from a uh, technology perspective, from a sourcing, supply and quality control perspective already. Um, we had obviously very talented account management and good strategy people. And so basically what we started doing is exploring some of these opportunities with clients and what one opportunity led to another and we started doing a very good job and that's basically um, where this has extended to. We're, we're dealing with very large corporates, you know, in America and, and some governments as well in uh, Europe uh, and in Australia and New Zealand was tremendously successful as well. So your business was pre-COVID-19 doing on the way to $100 million in, in sales, which is self-incredible and that, that looked like going to significantly less not not zero, but a lot less. And just to get an understanding of the, of the scale of, I'm not sure if you can say, but the scale of, of your PPE business in probably less than three months, what kind of what kind of sales do you think you'll end up with this financial year from from PPE? 
No, it's a good it's a good question. We we were probably heading towards eighty five or ninety million dollars pre our um, merger slash acquisition with the with our new German partner. Post that merger, we were probably going to be about one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty million dollars, and we had plans to be a two hundred million dollar company within two years. So. I guess, but you certainly aren't the kind of guy who's who. Obviously, you're an entrepreneur, and you've you've, you've had many businesses now, many different pivots in, in your business. But it doesn't sound like you're a guy who who went into business to get incredibly rich. Uh, you came into business to to help people and to to achieve to to build some really to build great things. Do you have an end game? Is there a do you just look five or ten years into the future and and know where you want to get to, or is it are you sort of We'll let the let we'll go wherever the road takes you. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, we're quite planned. I guess the key thing is when Michelle and I got married, we we had a bit of a pact between ourselves that we would live, live lives that would be self determined. So what we didn't want to do was let other people determine what we were going to do and how we were going to live. So I think that's pretty much guided us since you know for twenty five the last twenty five years and everything we've done is to be able to self-determine where we want to go and what we're trying to do within the scope, you know, of what's possible. So in terms of living to that that philosophy, from a business perspective, I certainly need to achieve, from a personal perspective, a certain level of wealth, if that's the right word, or success, financial success, whatever you want to call it, to be able to do some of the things that we'd like to do in terms of being self-determining. Because I'd love to travel, like when the kids are older, I'd love to travel more. Like there's a range of things, you know, everyone makes sacrifices as you're going through. There's a range of things that I would like to do, that Michelle would like to do and that we'd like to do together as we can. And, and that's from a personal perspective. From a business perspective, like what, what I'm like at home with the kids or what I'm like with my brothers and sisters or mum or what I'm like at work, it's the same person. So from a business perspective, we've also had that self-determining. So whilst a business can't just be about profit, you have to be profitable and successful because you've got to keep reinvesting. So I want, um, I, I'm aiming to achieve a, little, a minimum level of wealth to be able to, and, and for that you need a business to be able to perform at a certain level to be able to facilitate what you want to do in the future. Um, we talk to the team regularly. I don't necessarily want to be a, a, a billion-dollar business. Like we don't actually have a final growth target from a business perspective that we want to hit. I guess what we want to do is keep doing great work with a great group of people, and if you can do that, you're going to have success and you're going to keep building a business. And what I'm realising now is it's probably not up to me to dictate at what level or size um, or scope a business can be. So we've got a bit more of an emergent strategy now from a business perspective in terms of broadly we know where we're going, but the details are something that we're going to be, and I mean this is what the last three months have taught us, that the best laid plans are going to change rapidly depending on what opportunities or challenges occur. So, I mean, we've now achieved our 2022 goals this year. I mean, we haven't time, had time to catch our breath quite yet. Um, and we've got two or three more acquisitions lined up, smaller ones, that we want to roll in to help strengthen the team and the structure, the infrastructure of the business. Once we do that, I could imagine that we will be recalibrating what we would like to do as a team and as a group of people. So it's not just me deciding, it's 
the leadership group, but it's the broader team as well, because we've got to keep engaging our team and offering them opportunities and challenges. And so some of that could be moving geographically. Some of that could be a new division. Some of that could be just focusing on the core of what we're doing. But I would like to think that probably for the next three years, our broad strategy is right now. And what we'll then see is how far that growth can go. But as long as we don't lose the culture, I would stop growing the business if I thought the culture was going to be diluted to a point where it's going to affect our success because you need both to be able to keep doing what we're doing. You'll be glad to know that Pete has finally finished renovating his house and his four kids don't have to share the same bedroom anymore. As for his business, Zinc continues to grow from strength to strength. That was Pete Cleary, founder and CEO of Zinc, and you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.